You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Amen. Amen. If I haven't been able to meet you yet, I go by Ann. I get the privilege of serving as the pastor here at Midtown Two Notch. To all our guests that are joining us in person, all our guests who are joining us and tuning in with us online, thank you so much for joining with us and participating with us today as we worship together and now even as we sit under God's Word. Uh, before I get into the sermon today, uh, I just wanted to give a genuine heartfelt thank you uh, to many of you who are in the room, many of you who are joining us in online for uh, just the pastor appreciation gift that y'all gave me last week and also um, for the video that, that many of you made. I had no idea what was going on. So my, uh, for those who don't know, my father is a pastor as well. So I'm a preacher's kid. And I remember at different pastor appreciation things uh, that my dad would, would pick up a clue here or there and know that something was going on and they tried to surprise him, but he would actually figure it out beforehand. I had no idea. That, 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 that y'all would want to do that. And I greatly, and I greatly appreciate it. And just um, on, on, on a personal note, uh, and why just the Lord just worked this out in such a, in such a great way. Uh, I remember probably over the last month or so, I just remember, I mean, probably five to 10 times, I had these questions coming to my mind. It was just like, you know, with, with how distant we are oftentimes now with the, the mask and everything and it being more difficult to see everyone's face. I just had a lot of thoughts recently of like, I really don't know how our congregation and our members view me. And I was like, I just, I don't know. I wasn't assuming anything. And I, I wouldn't even say that I was extremely discouraged or anything like that because I, I know that like what God calls me to, I'm called to be faithful to him. Sometimes that's popular, sometimes that's not. And so I wasn't, I wasn't super discouraged or, or, or feeling like um, there was a lot of, you know, mistrust or whatever, but I, I just didn't know. And then God, through you guys, just answered that question for me. So I appreciate that from you all. Um, I know I greatly appreciate it. My wife greatly appreciate it. Uh, I know that's not something that you guys had to do, but you did it anyway. One, one more thing before we get into the sermon uh, on that note. I think it can be easy uh, for someone, maybe an outsider, to see something like that, which you guys uh, did, and the gifts that you gave and, and all of that, and think, man, they must really have a, a, a great pastor that they would do all of that. But but I actually view it a different way. Like I, I look at that, and I think, man, any pastor that has a congregation that does that really has a great congregation of members. And that the pastor is actually extremely blessed. And so I, I feel extremely blessed. I feel very much um, like it was just wind in my sails. And I feel encouraged and motivated and energized to continue on. Um, and with that said, I want to go ahead and transition into the sermon. But I just want to give a great, a, a big thank you to you all who uh, participated in that, played a role in that, organized that. Uh, it really, it really meant a lot. If you have a Bible, go ahead and go to Deuteronomy chapter 6 uh, with us today. Just wanted to remind us kind of the theme verse of this. A sermon series. I don't think I've been to it since maybe the first or second week of uh, the series. So just quick, quick context. Um, in this sermon series, God has freed his people from slavery. Or oh, in this passage, it says that God has freed his people from slavery in Egypt. They were enslaved there for many, many years, many generations. Um, and now that they've been freed, God is, has given them the, these commands that he, that he wants them to follow as they make their way to the promised land. So it takes them 40 years before they go into the promised land. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy is Moses kind of recounting for God's people what he has said to them, what he has done for them, what the last years have been like before they got into uh, the promised land. And here's what he says about the commands. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 23 through 24 reads, And he brought us out from here 
that he might bring us in, out from here talking about Egypt, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our forefathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. Moses makes it clear to God's people that God's commandments are for their good, that the the commandments, the ones that they understand, the ones that they don't understand, the ones that they like and the ones that they don't like are for the good of his people always, whether they make sense to them or not. The command that we'll look into today, I believe, is one that most of us would say is, is, is good and is for our good, even though it's one that can be difficult to obey. And hopefully I'll be able to show today, there's, I think there's ways oftentimes that we don't obey this command uh, potentially without even realizing it. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 20 reads, And you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So as a pastor's kid, I grew up in the, uh, in the church. I've been a Christian since my youth. I've encountered the Ten Commandments a lot in my life. And, and growing up, I think I just understood this passage to mean, or this verse to mean, don't lie, right? You, thou shalt not lie. I believe I've even seen it written that way. There's actually more here to this verse. And this verse is a little bit more specific as far as a specific kind of lying, very different from what we had either a week or, I think it was last week, uh, where the command was just do not steal. Very broad, not being, not being very specific about what you shouldn't steal. This one is, is more specific. You should not bear false witness against your neighbor. In that time, when someone committed a crime, there was no, obviously, video or audio evidence. There were no type of recordings that you could make or recordings that you could have at that time. If someone committed a crime or if you wanted to accuse someone of a crime, all you had was, was your word. Obviously, there was not DNA evidence, forensic evidence, or, and that type of thing. And I don't even believe there was like a, a lawyer that you, could, that you could use that was highly trained and educated oftentimes and how to defend you and that type of thing. And so what, you, what the case was based off of was people's word. If someone says that someone committed a crime, oftentimes you had to take people at their word. Now, there was a command about it need to be confirmed by two or three witnesses. So that at least was a protection for many people. But this command not to bear false witness had some legal implications into it. This is how they would have thought about the way they represented someone else's character, especially uh, in a legal matter, but not solely in a legal matter. This command is about when at any point in time, when you are to act as a witness to someone else's character or behavior, any point in time you're giving an account about someone else's character or their behavior, you're not to do it falsely. You're to do it in a way that is true, that is 100% accurate when at all possible. To not be a false witness against them. Before we get any, any further into the scriptures about this, I just want to ask uh, something to consider as I talked about God's commands being for our good always, how amazing would our world be if all of us did exactly that? How amazing of a world would we live in if no one ever bore false witness against anyone else, no one ever misrepresented someone else's intentions, misrepresented someone else's character, misrepresented someone else's behavior? How much would we be able to trust each other if that was the case? How how much freedom would that allow us in our world if we always, always appropriately, fairly, and honestly represented those who are 
around us. This would be a, an amazing way for us to live. And that's what God is after for us. And that's what, we're, what's what, I'm, what I'm continuing to try to say throughout this series. God's commands are always, always for our good individually and collectively as a people. Unfortunately, though, misrepresenting someone has been a problem in our world since the first few chapters of Genesis. We'll go into Genesis chapter 3. I'll pick it up in verse 1. The context, this is when the devil is tempting Eve to eat the fruit and sin against God in the garden. I want us to pay attention to exactly how he does that. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat any, eat of any tree in the garden? So first of all, we see Satan is coming to try to attack what God has already said, right? He's attacking. God did not tell them you can't eat from any tree in the garden. Right? You can always already see with his, with his questioning, he's trying to lead them away from the truth. Verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So the devil asked, did God really say you shouldn't eat from any of the trees? Eve was like, no, God said we can eat from the trees, just not that one particular tree in the middle of the garden. If we do, we will die. Here's what the serpent says in verse four. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The devil's like, no, that's not true. God just doesn't want your eyes to be open. God just doesn't want you to be like him. God is just withholding good things from you with this command. You're not going to die. God is, God, is, God is not trying to prevent you from experiencing bad. He's trying to prevent you from experiencing good. If I can use the language that I've already used today, he's bearing false witness against God. He's misrepresenting God's intentions. He's misrepresenting God's words. He's misrepresenting the truth that God has already shared with them. This is how he operates. He gets us to doubt what is true about God. He, he gets us to, well, he deceives us into believing lies instead of the truth. God created everything. God is honest about how things work. He is honest with us about what is good and what is bad, what is righteous and what is unrighteous. God does his work in sharing and spreading truth in the world, and the devil does his work by sharing and spreading lies and half-truths. He works and he works and influences largely through deception, through half-truths, through misleading us, by getting us to doubt God's truth. Jesus talks about him in this way in John chapter 8, verses 44 and 45. This is what he says. He's talking to some of the religious leaders of that day. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. He's letting us know, he's letting the leaders of that time know that what the devil does is he deceives us. That's how he operates. That's how he gains influence and power over us through deception. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, contrast this with what he just said, what he said in chapter 8 about the devil. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. He's saying, I am the truth. The enemy comes to deceive you. He, he speaks out of his native tongue when he tells lies. He is the father of lies. There's no truth in him, but I am the truth. I hope you see the contrast that Jesus is setting up here. 
There are two kingdoms at play here. There's a kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. One operates based on truth and righteousness and honesty that you can trust, that you can depend on, and that is trustworthy. One operates in the shadows. It's called the kingdom of darkness. One operates through deception, through half-truths, through bearing false witness about others. God's kingdom is built on truth. The devil's kingdom is built on deception. God's kingdom is built on reality. The devil's kingdom is built on unreality. God's kingdom is built on honesty. The devil's kingdom is built on dishonesty and half-truths. And God is calling us to join him in his kingdom of truth. And so for a Christian to participate in bearing false witness is to, be, is to, is to actually positionally be a part of the kingdom of truth while still living like we're still in the kingdom of darkness. For a Christian to bear false witness against our neighbor is to to not understand our identity. It is to live and have devoted our lives to the kingdom of truth, to building the kingdom of truth, while still working to build the kingdom of darkness, while spreading lies and deception, if we bear false witness against our neighbor. And we need to keep this in mind. Because I would say, and I'll try to make this point in a few moments, there are times in our lives when we are tempted to bear false witness against our neighbors. There are situations and scenarios that we often find ourselves in where the enemy would love to tempt us to bear false witness against our neighbor in ways that might oftentimes seem innocent to us. I have a saying that I tell leaders consistently oftentimes. And what I tell people is when you're helping two people navigate a conflict, I say, if you have not heard both sides of the story, I love you. You have no idea what happened. I'm going to say that again. If you have not heard both sides of the story, I always tell people, you have no idea what actually happened. I'm not saying you're just a little bit unclear. I'm saying you don't know what actually happened in the situation As a pastor, one thing that's happened to me, and this is one of the reasons I came to this conclusion, I'll talk to person A, I would hear what happened, I feel like I have a good understanding of what's going on, and I'll try to meet potentially with the the two people that are in conflict together, or maybe meet with with them separately, and I meet to to person B, who's also involved in this conflict, and I realize, oh, this is way more complicated than I originally thought that it was. I only had half the picture, and maybe I had less than that, from who I talked to earlier, and now I'm, I'm, I have a much clearer understanding of what is actually going on. One of the things I've realized as a pastor over the years in trying to mediate conflict between um, brothers and sisters in the faith is that we as Christians often bear false witness against each other when we discuss with others a conflict that we're having with another believer. We often bear false witness against the person that we are in conflict with And it's especially damaging and harmful when that person is a follower of Jesus. And I think we do this in at least a couple of different ways. Sometimes we do this in a way that I truly believe we don't have malicious intent. That we're not actually trying to harm somebody. We're not actually trying to just see someone be torn down. Likely, we just don't want ourselves to be looked down on. It's not that we really want the other person to be looked down on, but we don't want to be looked down on. So as I'm going to, as I'm going to another brother or sister, maybe asking for counsel or advice or, or guidance or wisdom or prayer or whatever it is, I'm not, I don't want the other person to be looked down on. I just want to make sure I'm not being looked down on. 
I think oftentimes the shame that we feel in our hearts causes us to bear false witness against our neighbor. Oftentimes, because we don't want to feel the condemnation that we feel, oftentimes if we admit the wrongs that we have done in a conflict, we kind of edit the story a little bit. We share it in a way where it makes us look better, where it makes it look like we're the ones that are being sinned against. And really, I was being real righteous and holy in this conversation with this other person. Real righteous and holy. We'd love to ask you a question today. Your friends, the people that you go to, the people that you confide in, right? When you talk to them about a conflict that you're having with somebody else, if I were to ask them, is your friend always in the right? Are they always the one being sinned against? What would they say? If I were to talk to them about the way that you present the story, is the story always slanted that in a way that emphasizes the wrongs of the other person but minimizes your own wrongdoing? Are you always the victim? Is everything always the other person's fault? Because if that is how you present the story, if that is how it's always presented, one of two things is true. The first thing that might be true is maybe you're perfect. Maybe you just don't sin against people and everybody that you're in relationship with is always sinning against you. Or maybe you got the the cropped and edited version that you communicate. Maybe you communicate what you want to communicate. Maybe you don't have a relentless devotion to honesty and being real and being trustworthy, but you have a relentless devotion to making sure you are seen in a certain light. Maybe you are devoted to image management to trying to make sure that people see you the way that you want them to see you, and that leads you to bearing false witness against your neighbor. You're misrepresenting their character. You're misrepresenting their behavior. You're you're, you're assigning intentions to them that aren't truly theirs. You have a tendency to highlight and maybe even exaggerate what the other person did to wrong you. Married people in the room. Let me talk to the husbands real quick. Let me talk to the husbands real quick. Your boys, your boys, the ones that you talk to, the ones that you talk to when you're having issues with your spouse. Is the story that they get that your wife is always the one that's really in the wrong and you're just the one being done wrong? Is that the story? That, I'm talking about your life group guys, right? You know, you, you split up for the, for the gender specific time and you got the guys over here. You're talking to the fellas about the problem that you're having that's going on in paradise right now. Are you always the one that's being done wrong? Is that the way that it's presented? Same question for the wives in the room. If I were to ask your girlfriends, the, the, girl, the women in your life group about the problems, the issues, the conflicts in your marriage, will they tell me that the, really the problem is your husband because he can't, he won't just do nothing right. What would they say? Would they say that you have a tendency to highlight or exaggerate your spouse's wrongdoings? For all of us in the room, for all of us watching online, are you always the more righteous one in the stories that you tell? Again, for some of us, I think we need to really dig deeper than the surface, 
deep, deeper than the surface, excuse me, on this one, because for some of us, it's really the shame that is leading us. It's not, we're not even maliciously acting against someone. We have this, this tendency, this dedication, this devotion to trying to cause people to see us as a little bit more righteous than we actually are. You're not trying to make them think less of someone else. You just don't want people to think less of you. You don't want to feel like people are condemning or looking down on you, or you just want to be validated and affirmed in your anger and your hurt, or you just want to be validated or, and, and affirmed in the response that you gave to them when they wronged you. You just want people in your corner. You want to feel supported in that way. So the story you tell, in a way, makes you seem just a little bit more innocent than the other person. And this is a huge problem for multiple reasons, but I want to give you one reason it's a huge problem when Christians do this. It's a huge problem when Christians do this because bearing false witness causes division in the body of Christ. Bearing false witness causes division in the body of Christ. You were just trying to get people to affirm your feelings, but now they have just a little bit less trust for the person you were telling them about. For that brother or sister, that brother or sister now is in your life, that's in your life group, that's in the same body, oftentimes in the same church family with this other person that you're telling them about. Now they have a little bit less trust for them. Now they look at them sideways. Now they can't believe that they would do something like that to you. And the reason they can't believe is because they didn't actually do it. The reason they can't believe it, they're like, this doesn't seem consistent. It's because now you are spreading things that are not true as you bear false witness. You just didn't want people to look down on you, but now people are looking down on the other person. And this happens in devastating ways in churches. I've seen this happen with, with leaders within the church. I was talking to a pastor. He's not a part of Midtown. And he was talking about a situation that he was going through with, with some of the people in his church that he was leading. And then they had a conversation with him where he challenged them very directly on a few different things. And they left saying that, this, that, that he as a pastor was, was not servant hearted because he was coming down on them so hard when he was just simply laying out for them. Hey, here were the expectations and you didn't meet those expectations. You didn't do the things that you said that you were going to do. But because they wanted people within the church to be on their side, they misconstrued the story. Now that church trusts their pastor less than they should. The mission of God is being hindered because of the bearing of false witness by just a few members within the church. Bearing false witness causes division in the body of Christ. This is worth grieving over. John 17 Verses 22 and 23 come to mind when I think about the need for unity and oneness within the church. I'll pick up in the middle of verse 22. This is Jesus praying to the Father for his disciples and for everyone who will come to faith throughout the generations after them. He says that they may be one even as we are one. So Jesus is praying to God, just like you and I, Father, are one and we're united together. That's what I want for them. He says that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Here's the important part. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Jesus makes the point here that the unity and oneness of the church makes a statement about the validity of Jesus and his mission, that our unity communicates to our world that our God is who he says he is, which means our disunity proclaims a lie to our world about God. It proclaims a lie to the world about Jesus and the love that God the Father has 
for us. Our unity will make a statement either way, either a statement of truth that's in line with the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God, or a statement of unreality, a statement that is false. The irony is that when we bear false witness about each other, we actually bear false witness about God. That when we bear false witness about another brother or sister, that statement actually bears false witness about our God. In a church that values having very close relationships and being transparent and honest the way that our church values those things, there will be times where you talk about conflict that you're having with other brothers and sisters to genuinely seek prayer, to genuinely seek uh, advice. And you need to know that every single impulse and desire and thought that you have to even slightly misrepresent the situation in a way that favors you is a result of you being deceived by the enemy to think that it is okay for you to bear false witness. Every single impulse, every single desire, every single thought that you have to to misrepresent the character of someone else, that every single thought that you have to to, to slightly even deceive someone else as as you're explaining what went down is a result of you already being deceived. That if you're deceiving someone else by bearing false witness, that comes from a result of you being first deceived by the enemy himself. And I need you to know that, that he would love to, 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 for you to be affirmed in your anger and affirmed in your hurt as you tell lies and bear false witness about what is actually taking place. My, my recommendation to all of us is to actively seek God. When we're sharing with others about an interaction with someone that has hurt us, that has offended us, that has angered us, that we would seek God in prayer. Prayers like, God, help me to be objective and communicate honestly with 100% accuracy what actually went down so I'm not bearing false witness against my brothers, so I'm not bearing false witness against my sister. The enemy would love to be at work in our conflict. Conflict can unite or conflict can tear apart. You can have a conflict, resolve it, and come back closer and stronger than you were before, or you can have a conflict and then spread lies and deceit and bear false witness, and it lead to more and more division. And the enemy would love to be at work in and through that. May we pray that the Spirit of God would search our hearts. God, please keep me from using this conversation to get people to think more highly of me. Help me to share this story as objectively as possible without bearing false witness. I recommend prayers like this because oftentimes we don't discern our own heart and motives as we share these types of conversations. And at the same time, I want to be very clear about the other side of this coin. Because there are times when we bear false witness because we do want to put others down. Because there are times when we bear false witness because we are angry with someone. And we want others to join us in our anger against them. There are times when we bear false witness because we are against someone and we want others to be against them too. There are times when we bear false witness as a means of getting revenge because we refuse to forgive those who have offended us. If we're honest, some of us, at least some of the time, enjoy gossip. We use our words to tear people down as we use half-truths or exaggerations to intentionally affect how someone else might view someone that we have something against. And if you're doing this in the body of Christ, I'm letting you know now it's because you've been deceived. You've been deceived by the very one who was the first to bear false witness, who who, who bore false witness against God himself. You're being deceived. 
If you ever decided to bear false witness against your neighbor, you were deceived by the devil before you ever deceived anyone else. You believed a lie before you ever told a lie. And you brought division into the kingdom of God because of it. Bearing false witness is the cause of much division in the church. In the church. So if you, are in a, if you find yourself in a situation where you feel like someone is gossiping about someone else, especially with another believer, if you find yourself in a situation where you believe, I don't, I don't know if this person is bearing false witness or lie. If you find yourself in a situation, you just think this is, this is wrong. This is not good talk or conversation that we should have. I'm calling you through the power of the Holy Spirit to be bold enough to say something to the effect of, hey, I, I'm really not comfortable with this conversation the way it's going. I'm really not comfortable with what's being said right now. I'm, I'm, I'm not comfortable. My, my, my heart, my spirit is not okay with what is being said right now. I'm, 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 I'm just not. I'm, I'm going to ask that we take this conversation in a different direction. As we saw earlier, God deeply cares about unity in his body. Because God cares so much about this, I want to help us to see other ways and other areas in our lives where we're tempted to bear false witness against our neighbors. Because oftentimes we bear false witness against people because we believe certain things about them based on a group that we associate them with. And then we make huge, unfair statements assigning motives and beliefs and characteristics to people that we don't know because we find it easier to take away someone's individuality by lumping them into a group of people that we disagree with. Let me make it plain. I don't care what you say. If you vote for Trump, you blank. I'm going to say that one again. I don't care what you say. If you vote for Trump, then you believe blank. Then you are like blank. Then you are filling the blank. I don't care what you say. If you voted for Biden, that's because you blank. You love blank. You Oh, I'll say it a different way. I don't care what you say. If you're a Republican, it's because you don't care about blank. I don't care what you say. If you're a Democrat, it's because you don't care about blank. Here's what you're doing. You're assigning motives to thousands upon thousands of people that you do not know. That you do not know based on assumptions that you have, based on something that you saw or you heard from some or maybe even many of the people that you are describing, but you are undoubtedly bearing false witness against some people. And some of you right now on your social media, you have statements you need to take down. You are bearing false witness against your brother and your sister and you do not even care. You have not even thought about it and you need to take it down. The commandment says, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Do not say anything that is not true. And if you're making a sweeping sweeping statement about the motivations and about what, what people actually care about that you don't even know, you need to stop. In the body of Christ, it needs to stop. When you lump large numbers of people together and assign to them certain negative characteristics, when you don't know the people at all that you're talking about, you're bearing false witness against your neighbor. And if you are aware of any posts that you still have up, you need to take them down in compliance with this command that God gives us that is for our good. We're so quick to make posts. We don't even talk to people. We even ask people why. We were afraid to enter into a conversation, but we're bold enough to make a post. I'm ranting. I'm on soapbox. I'm going to keep moving. I'm on soapbox. I'm going to keep moving. I'm going to keep moving. I'm going to keep moving. And here's maybe the worst thing about Christians bearing false witness against our neighbors. When we do this, we misrepresent our God. 
when you misrepresent the actions, the intentions, the behavior, the character of someone else, you're actually misrepresenting your God at the same time. We fail to show the world who God truly is. We mislead the world around us about who God is. And this happens in two ways. One of them I already brought up about bringing division within the body of Christ, which when we bring division to the body of Christ, it proclaims to the world that Jesus isn't who he says, who he said he was. It says that Jesus didn't come to unite us and make us one forever in him. But we also misrepresenting, we also misrepresent him, excuse me, by living in a way that is completely opposite to his nature. That when we lie, when we bear false witness, we live in a way that is opposite to our God's nature. When we become false witnesses about our neighbor, we become bad witnesses about our God. And I want to encourage you to take a moment to consider this. Consider this for a moment. Consider how essential it is to our faith, to Christianity, that God never lies. Consider how how essential that theological point is that God never lies, that he never says anything in this untrue, that he's never deceptive at all. How important is that? Have you ever thought about this? He's been speaking since Genesis chapter one. He has made promise after promise after promise. All of them have come to pass or will come to pass. This is essential to our faith. I want to try to use the the rest of the moments that I have together with you to make this point. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19 says this, God is not man that he should lie. John chapter 17, verse 17 says, this is again, Jesus praying to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And he's saying that every word that comes from you is truth. 100%, every single time, take it to the bank without exception. Every single thing that he says is truth. True. This is essential to Christianity that God never lies, that he is the truth. Because if he lies even once, then we can't trust him enough to give our lives over for him. We can't trust enough to give our lives over our lives over to him if he lies to us even once. If one thing that he says is not true, then how can we trust him? Our faith, part of the bedrock of our faith is that God is faithful, that he is trustworthy. This is who he is. He calls us to trust him and follow him and give our lives over to him until our very last breath. And there are many who have lost their lives because of this as they were following God, trusting in him, trusting in his truth that we will inherit eternal life and the kingdom of God in the next life. It is essential that we can trust him. It is essential that the world around us knows that they can trust him as well. And we will only trust him to the degree that he demands us to if we can trust that he never lies. And it is essential to our faith that he has not lied, not even once, that everything that he has ever said comes true. And that's why I love this verse I already got to, John chapter 14, verse six, where Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. He's saying, I am the truth. That there is no truth that is outside of what has come from Jesus himself. In a sense, we worship him because he is honest and trustworthy. We come to him, we believe in him, we follow him, we put our faith and our trust and our hope in him because we know him to be honest and trustworthy. And I just want to share it with you. If you want to determine whether or not someone is trustworthy or not, you just have to look at their track record. You look back and see, do they tell the truth? Do they lie? And the thing that helps me to trust God the most and be most reminded of the fact that he is always honest is I look back to the promise that he made to Eve. 
I was in Genesis 3 a little earlier. I won't turn back there for the sake of time. But when I was in Genesis chapter 3, one of the things we showed that the enemy came to, 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 to Eve. She sinned against God. She didn't put her trust in God. But then God came a little bit later and made a promise to Eve. And he said to Eve that one of your descendants is going to crush the head of this snake. He's saying one of your descendants is going to come. There's going to be this blessed lineage that goes throughout history. And there's going to be a savior that's going to come. He's going to undo the evil that this snake just did. And he's going to restore creation to the way that it's supposed to be through this blessed and divine lineage. And I want to tell you something to help you understand what's going on throughout the Old Testament. Because I believe oftentimes we miss the big picture when we look at the smaller stories. I'll give you an example like the flood. Generation after generation, God increasingly evil and wicked and violent against one another. God brings this flood of judgment, but he doesn't wipe everybody out because he saves Noah and his family. And maybe you thought he just saved Noah and his family because he's a good God and he's kind and he's gracious. And that's what he does. And all those things are true. But there's something you also have to understand. He didn't just say, I'm going to send a savior later. He didn't just say, I'm going to send someone to crush the serpent's head. He said, I'm going to send one of your descendants to do it. That means when he brought the flood, he couldn't kill and wipe out everybody because there had to be a descendant of Eve. You need to see the ark as proof of God's faithfulness and the fact that he's trustworthy. He made a promise to Eve that he was going to keep. And then later on, as we move throughout the Old Testament, you might remember this blessed lineage comes through Abraham. But there's a problem. Abraham's wife is, is, is too old to have a child when God makes his promise to him. And it seems like, how is this going to happen? But God opens up her womb. And then you might remember the next generation with Isaac because Isaac's wife was barren. But Isaac's wife couldn't be barren because God made a promise to Eve and the lineage was coming through Abraham and through Isaac. So God opens up her womb as well. And then maybe you'll remember generation after generation where it's like, well, is the Savior really supposed to come from this group of people? They've worshiping all kinds of idols. They're not following God. First, he exiles 10 tribes out of the promised land. Then he exiles the next two. And it's like they're spread across the empire all over the place. It's like, well, how is this going to happen? But then God brings them back from exile after all of their idolatry back into the promised land. They continue to not worship him. And then for 400 years, they hear nothing from God. 400 years. God made a promise to Eve centuries ago. 400 years, nothing. That's a word for any of us who think that God isn't faithful because there's been a long time since we've seen him move in the way that we expected him to move. But what we see here is that after 400 years of silence, after 400 years of it seeming like God is not going to, he's not going to fulfill this promise. He's not going to keep this one. He sends Jesus to Bethlehem as a baby to come and do everything that he said that he was going to do to defeat the serpent. He overcame obstacle after obstacle after obstacle to keep the promise that he had made centuries ago. And if you really want to know if you can trust someone, if you really want to know if someone is devoted to truth, see if they remain honest when it costs them something. See if they remain honest, if it's going to cause them pain, if it's going to cause them to suffer loss, if it's going to cause them grief. See if they're just committed to, to convenience or if they're truly committed to honesty. Are they only honest when it's convenient for them or are they honest and faithful and trustworthy and dependable no matter what is going on in their life? Because for Jesus Christ to keep the promise that was made to Eve so many years ago, he had to suffer excruciating pain. He was publicly mocked and disgraced. He was deserted by his friends. He shed his blood and gave his life for us and he kept the promise that was made to Eve when he rose from the grave with all power in his hands, offering salvation to all who would believe in him. If you have trouble trusting whether or not God is trustworthy, look at the cross and look at Eve. Look at the mother of all who are living. And remember, if he kept that promise to her, he's also kept his promises to every single person that's come after her that is a descendant of hers. God keeps 
his promises. Our God is trustworthy. He's dependable. He's reliable. He's faithful. Our God is devoted to being honest no matter the cost. Our God is the way, the truth, and the life. He's not a man that he should lie. He is always, always, always honest and trustworthy and true. And may we, in light of that, be a people that are honest just like our God is. May we not be a people that bear false witness against our brother and our sister or against our neighbor. May we then not be a church where those who don't know God come in and see us not being 100% honest when we talk about each other because we represent a God who is relentlessly honest. He is devoted to telling the truth at all times, no matter the cost, because the world needs to see an example of who our God is. The world that needs to trust God enough to give their lives over to him needs to see a church that represents his honesty and is honest with one another and are true in everything that we say to each other and about each other. Because we want to be a people, we want to be a church that is honest and trustworthy that helps the world see just how trustworthy our God is. And may we not be false witnesses against our neighbor so that we can continue to be faithful witnesses for our God. Family, pray with me today.